Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to everyone. Now you can see why we felt the need to add on to our auditorium. It's so good to have all of you with us. And our kids did just a fantastic job. So much work goes into that. And so thank you to our leaders. Thank you to our kids for opening our service and pointing us to Christ. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Christmas is all about Christ. We want to center our attention around the miraculous birth of Jesus today. If you've been with us for the month of December, you know that we've been working our way through a series of messages on miraculous births in the Bible. We've considered the miraculous birth of Samson. We've considered the miraculous birth of the church, the miraculous new birth of the Christian, and this morning we want to consider the most miraculous birth of all, the birth of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to jump right in this morning. We have a lot to cover. We have a lot to consider today as we consider the miraculous birth of Jesus. And so here we have the account in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here we we not only learn about the miraculous nature of the birth of Jesus, but we learn of the purpose of his birth. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, And he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, means Savior, or the Lord is my Savior. Jesus was sent to the earth on a mission, right? And that mission was to provide salvation to every single sinner who places their faith and trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. As we read this, some 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, it's really hard to miss God's sovereignty in all of it. First, it's pretty clear that Jesus' birth was planned. Verse 23 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, which was some 700 years prior to this encounter with the angel of the Lord. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, literally a a woman who has never had sexual relations with a man, a woman will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God the Father sends an angel 
to let Joseph in on his plans. Of course, what made the birth of Jesus so miraculous was that he was born of a virgin. In other words, Jesus was not conceived in the same way that everyone else is conceived through the joining together of the sperm of man and the egg of a woman. No, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, meaning that Mary was the mother of Joseph, of Jesus, but he had no biological father because, as the text says, Mary was a virgin, and it was God the Holy Spirit who caused her to be with child. So here we have the angel of the Lord letting this man Joseph in on God's plan for this miraculous birth. And you can understand why, because Joseph's not a bit player in this story. He was betrothed, or we might say he was engaged to be married to Mary. And of course, Mary's reputation was on the line. And the text says that Joseph was a righteous man. And so as he's trying to figure all this out, as he's trying to determine how in the world this woman that he planned to marry is going to be pregnant, but he would not be the father, he's taking it all in. And it's a fascinating account. Around the same time, Mary had been approached by the angel Gabriel, and she was told the same thing. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 35 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So Jesus would be in the biological line of David through his mother Mary. And this reference here in Luke chapter 1 to David's throne is speaking of Jesus' future millennial reign where he will sit on David's throne. And all of this is yet future. But we see these angels are relaying to Mary and Joseph God's eternal plan. And he goes on to say, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. So if you're still in Matthew chapter 1, I, I want us to consider this word conceived here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. It's the Greek word ganao. And, and this is another example in Scripture that points to the truth that life begins at conception. But this particular word for conceived here carries with it the father's role in the birth process. So the angel of the Lord tells Joseph that there will be no biological father. It will be the Spirit of God who will cause Mary to be with child. And she will give birth to Jesus in the same way that mothers give birth to their children today. Now, because of the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth, I, I want us to consider the depth of what occurred some 2,000-plus years ago in the city of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, by the way, is about six miles southwest of Jerusalem. In today's vernacular, we would consider it to be a suburb of Jerusalem. It's not far from where Jesus will one day reign in the newly built temple in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. And so it is in close proximity to Jerusalem. So I want to give you some important theological words or phrases that you need to know that are specific or unique to Jesus. 
So if you're taking notes this morning, the first word is incarnation. So if you want to turn back to John chapter 1 and verse 14, literally the word incarnation means in the meat or, or in the flesh. It comes from the Latin version of this verse, John 1, 14, which in the English reads, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word, the, the logos, the visible, tangible expression of God became flesh and literally, physically pitched his tent among the people. And we know from John chapter 1 and verse 1 that in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So not only was the birth of Jesus miraculous in the sense that Jesus was born of a virgin, but, but Jesus would be God in the flesh. Jesus would take on human flesh and live some 33 years on this earth. And so while he was truly God, he was also truly man, and the incarnation emphasizes his humanity. For example, in the Gospels, we find in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus was tired and his body needed sleep. We find in Matthew chapter 4 and, verse 20, and, and Matthew chapter 21 that his body needed food and water. In Luke chapter 22, we find that he perspired. And in John 19, we see that he bled. We also have accounts where Jesus exhibited human emotions like joy and sorrow and righteous anger. Of course, Jesus, while he was on the earth, referred to himself as a man. And even after his death and resurrection, his humanity was still recognized. He was fully man. God incarnate. But again, the ultimate purpose for the incarnation was to provide redemption for believing sinners like us, to save people like us, rotten, awful sinners, to save us from the due penalty of our sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Every sinner deserves eternal separation, eternal damnation. Every sinner deserves spiritual death. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came to the earth to save his people from their sins. And we know that the scriptures say that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. What does it mean to believe? Is it an acknowledgement that Jesus is who he said he is? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Because Jesus came as the promised Messiah. Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and he would come and he, he would provide this redemption that people need because people are sinners and they're deserving of spiritual death. And so that is part of our acknowledgement. That is part of our belief that we believe that Jesus is who he said he is, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the one who was sent from the glories of heaven to come to the earth to die in the place of sinners. That's part of it. But belief goes to faith, goes to trust, and so not only do we acknowledge all of those things that I just said about who Jesus is, but that Jesus died in the place of those who would believe in him, trust in him, place their faith in him for their salvation. And so it's both. 
It's not just an acknowledgement as to who Jesus is, but it is a trust and a belief in what he provides to sinners. So when I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, when I was sitting under that tree in Low Point, Illinois, right outside of Peoria, Illinois, after a church service in a Christian camp, when I was 15 years of age, soon to turn 16, when I sat under that tree and the weight of my sin gripped me and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I believed not only who he was, but that he's the only one that can save me from my sin. I must turn to Jesus Christ in repentance from my sin and place my faith in him and in him alone. It's not works that causes anyone to go to heaven. And let let me just say about works here as we begin. How good is good enough? What is the standard that God has? as it relates to works. Well, obviously, and we'll look at this in a moment, that Jesus came to the earth to fulfill the law, to to fulfill the law perfectly. Why? Because nobody else could do it. All men are sinners. And so all of us have no hope whatsoever relying upon our own goodness, our own deeds. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. People need to know that just because they think they're better than their neighbor, or they think that they're better than the rest of the people in their family, or they think that they're better or more moral than the people that they work with, that has absolutely nothing to do with the salvation that Jesus came to provide. He came to provide eternal life for sinners who come to the end of themselves. Not who place value on what they do, but they place no value on what they do. Jesus came to, 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 to save people like us who have sinned against God repeatedly our whole lives. And what's interesting is that we still continue to do that. Even after the penalty has been paid, even after we believe in Christ, we still struggle with the flesh. And we talked about this last Sunday. There's that war that goes on in the life of a true believer in Jesus Christ. That that war between the flesh and the spirit. It's a lifelong battle, and one day we will be glorified as we see him as, as he is. We will not struggle with sin anymore, but sin is so in, ingrained in who we are and in the culture today. It's not just about Jesus in a manger. It's not just about Jesus coming to the earth. It's what are you placing your faith and trust in, right? We can walk into Walmart and they can say Merry Christmas, and we can say Merry Christmas, and this is a merry time of the year, and we can mean that, but it's not so merry for those who do not turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came for a specific purpose, and the purpose was to die in the place of sinners. Think of it this way, Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to accomplish what the Father sent him to do, which was to die in the place of sinners. So as I said, first it was necessary for Jesus to be born under the law. 
Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why was that significant? Because as I said, because all of mankind has failed to fulfill God's law. So Jesus came in the flesh under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. Second, Jesus needed to become a man because the law said without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 9.22. So without a body, a blood sacrifice would not be possible. And so this was God's plan for the incarnation. Hebrews 10.5 says when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you prepared for me. And so without the incarnation, Jesus could not have shed his blood and die in the place of sinners and offer this atonement for sin. This is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 1 Peter 1.19 says to those who believe that we are now redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So the first word is incarnation. The second word that's important for us to know and to consider about Jesus' birth is kenosis. Kenosis. If you want to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, this term kenosis comes here from this verse which says, In his incarnation, the God-man emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men. And the word translated empty is a form of the Greek word kino, which is where we get our word kenosis. And so while Philippians 2.7 doesn't specifically say what, what Jesus emptied himself of, It appears that this refers to Jesus voluntarily setting aside the independent use of some of his divine privileges while he was on the earth. Jesus was truly God and truly man. Fully God, fully man. He never emptied himself of his deity. That's heresy. He just took the form of a bondservant. He submitted himself to the will of the Father while he was on the earth. The third theological word or phrase unique to Jesus is hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Hypostatic simply means personal. So the hypostatic union then is the personal union of Jesus' two natures, the human and the divine. One person, two natures. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about the hypostatic union. Wayne Grudem, the great theologian, says, It is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. And then finally, the fourth theological word specific or unique to Jesus that we need to know is impeccability. Impeccability. We all know that Jesus never sinned, 
right? Scripture says that he was tempted in all points as man, but without sin. So the question isn't, did Jesus sin? We know that he didn't sin. The question is, could he have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? And this is important, and it relates to the hypostatic union. There are two possibilities with this. Either Jesus could have sinned and didn't, or Jesus could not have sinned. So let me remind you a little bit about this whole definition of impeccability. First, the word peccability means able not to sin. Okay, so peccability is the ability not to sin. Impeccability means that Jesus could not have sinned. Now, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created peccable, which means that they were created without a sin nature. They were able not to sin. They could have lived forever and never sinned. They did not have a sin nature, but they were both created with a will. And when Adam and Eve did sin, he passed along his sin nature, his new sin nature, to the whole human race. And so every person since Adam is born with a sin nature, totally depraved, dead in their trespasses and sins, meaning that there is now no one who is able not to sin. Because of Adam's sin nature passed on to all his posterity, every person is now not able not to sin. Follow me? Because why? That's our nature. That is every person's nature. They are a sinner. That sin nature, Romans 5.12, was passed on to them, Adam being the representative of mankind before God. He sins in the garden, and now he has this new sin nature, and that sin nature is passed on to all who would come after Adam. Every person now is not able not to sin. They're sinners. We are sinners. The question is, when Jesus took on flesh, was he susceptible to the temptation of sin? As I said earlier, he was tempted in all points as man, but without sin. Could he have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? And the answer is a resounding no. He could not have sinned because God cannot sin. Jesus was the God-man. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And so the temptations that Jesus experienced were very real, but he could not have sinned. He was impeccable. So here's what we have. Jesus, God the Son, was sent to the earth as a loved gift from God the Father to save all whom the Father gave to him. And all of that is absolutely foundational for what we want to consider for the rest of our message. So I'd like for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15. Now, let me just say in the big picture here, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are in the context of giving. So if you were to read all the way through chapter 8, all the way through chapter 9, you're going to see repeated references to giving. Okay, So Paul is instructing the church at Corinth on the subject of giving. And then here in 2 Corinthians 9 in verse 15, the Apostle Paul is making sure that we as Christians 
don't separate the gift from the giver. You notice that? He says, not thanks for the gift. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's not even describable, the gift that God has given us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not words that we can put together that are going to be sufficient for us to understand the magnitude of what Jesus has done in coming to this earth. And so God gave us this amazing gift. He is the ultimate gift giver. And so just real quickly, let's consider some of God's special gifts to us. First, of course, is the gift of Jesus. And of course, that's what we're talking about here today. As I mentioned, Jesus is the absolute greatest gift of all. And it's God's gift of Jesus that sometimes gets crowded out this busy time of the year. I was at the store and it was packed a few days ago. I was making small talk with this little guy. And he looked up at me and I said, hey, uh, what's coming up? Christmas. Christmas. Big smile on his face. He was dressed in red and green. And I said, do you know why we celebrate Christmas? And he said, yeah. So we can get presents from Santa Claus. <laughs> Incorrect. No. I said, well, do you know what the word Christmas means? And he said, no, what? And I said, you know, the first part of that is Christ. Christmas is actually a celebration of Jesus Christ coming to the earth. He is. It is. And about that time, his mom came into the picture and she said, oh, you should know that. You should know that. Christmas is about Christ. Christmas is about Jesus. Well, he didn't know that. At least that's not what came to his mind. You know, it's fun to, to give gifts. It's fun to receive gifts. But let me challenge you. Remember the ultimate gift of Jesus. We never want to, celebrate, to separate the gift from the giver. This is what John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, in other words, what we deserve as sinners is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second gift is the gift of salvation. And of course, this goes along with the first. As I mentioned, salvation cannot be earned. So what happens at salvation is essentially that God gives us His righteousness through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the great exchange. It's our sin for Christ's righteousness. So when we stand before eternal God, we don't present our own righteousness. We don't present our own supposed good works or any merit of our own. We present to God the merit of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Huge difference. Huge, huge difference. 
the gift of salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. Ephesians 4, 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Third is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we've considered this in great detail the past couple of weeks. Acts 2.38 says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus and the salvation He brings, the Holy Spirit is a gift. And isn't it interesting that the Spirit is a gift to us, but what does the Spirit do? He gives us gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. And then fourth is the gift of everything. <laughs> it's the gift of everything. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Our families, our friends, our church, our homes, our money, our possessions. We could go on and on. It's the gift of everything. But we remember that Scripture says we're not owners of those gifts. We're simply managers, stewards. God owns it all. God calls us to be extremely generous with everything that has been entrusted to us. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow, shifting shadow. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? So what is our response to our God who gives us all of these undeserved gifts? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will in you. So we not only give thanks for the gift, but we give thanks for the giver of the gift. So how are we as God's people to live in light of God's amazing generosity? Well, scripture says we are to imitate him. Ephesians 5:1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. probably shouldn't say this. I hadn't planned to say this, but I walked into the house the other night and there was a not-so-fragrant aroma in the house. And I won't tell you so as not to embarrass the person, but it was the stinky feet of someone who had inhabited our home. Somebody had come into our home with stinky feet, and it was waffling through the house. I walked in, I was like, oh, Kathy, what happened? What are you talking about? Do you smell it? Yeah. So I did some invest investigative work, and I traced it down to the feet of someone who was in our home. Not such a fragrant aroma. This gives us a picture here in Ephesians 5.1 
that our life should be an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In other words, what does your life smell like when God comes and He looks at your life? Does He go, what in the world is that stench? What is that smell? Or does He say, wow, it smells really good. You see... We live our lives for an audience of one. Yes, we live in this world. Yes, we interact in this world. Yes, we have friends and we have family and we have co-workers and we have neighbors and we have church members and friends. We, we have all that. But we essentially live for an audience of one. We're not going to stand before our friends one day. We're not going to stand before our family members. We're going to stand before this Jesus who came to the earth to save us from our sin. And when we walk in, he's going to be smelling. What does our life look like? I think we sometimes miss that there's an equation in giving. There's the giver of the gift. There's the gift itself. And then there's the receiver of the gift. And so to one degree or another, we're all givers and we're all receivers. And Kathy and I love to give gifts during this time of the year. Kathy's been working very hard at putting together something very special for our grandkids and for our kids as they come over tomorrow. We want to bless people at this time of Christmas. And so many of you have blessed me and Kathy and Pastor Flip and Missy during this time of the year. But there's this equation, isn't there? There's this equation. There's the giver of the gift, there's the gift itself, and then there's the receiver of the gift. But it all starts with the giver, right? Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. We can be thankful for our salvation, but we're missing it if we're not thankful for the one who gave us our salvation, who sent Jesus Christ to come and to do what we could not do from our, for ourselves. Without the giver, there is no receiver. And so as those who are to be imitators of God, let me give you five things that matter about giving. And it doesn't get more practical than this. Number one, it matters that you give. It matters that you give. Every Christian should have a heart of giving. It should be natural for us to give to others because giving is at the heart of living out the Christian life. We're to imitate God, who is the ultimate giver. Jesus said in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than receive. Doesn't mean that it's not blessed to receive. It is. But it's such a blessing when folks think of us in a, in a special way. A couple years ago, Kathy and I took our two oldest grandkids out for dinner. I think their mom and dad uh, wanted a night out or wanted to go out or had to do some shopping or something like that. So we took our, our grandkids, Blake and Riley, out for dinner. And, um, you know, they're a little younger. And uh, so you never know, right? You go to a restaurant, you never know. They were so good. They were so good. So 
we eat our dinner, we have a great time together, and this lady that must have been sitting in the opposite part of the dining area comes up, and she goes over to uh, our grandson, Blake, and said, you kids, you kids were so good. I was watching you tonight. You were so good. And she gave them $2 each. I'm like, hey, what about me? <laughs> so she gives them $2. So about a month later was my birthday. And little Blake wouldn't you know, this meant so much to him, these $2. I mean, $2 to a kid's a lot of money, right? And so he cherished these $2. On my birthday, I open up the card that he made for me. And you know what was taped to that card? Those $2. Oh. I thought, wow. This is a perfect example of the heart of giving. This little guy loved those two bucks. I think he probably would have had them framed. You know, kids, they put their most cherished possessions on the top of their dresser. And those two dollars sat on the top of his dresser. And when it came time for my birthday, he said, Papa, I want you to have these. So, precious. It matters that we give. We're to have a heart of giving. Second, it matters what you give. By its very nature, giving should not be obligatory, but generous and sacrificial. 1 Corinthians 8.3, Paul says that they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability, and they gave of their own accord. 2 Corinthians 9.6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. So it matters that you give. It matters what you give. And then third, it matters when you give. Paul implored the folks at the church at Corinth to not only be intentional in their giving, but systematic in their giving. And, and this is more in reference to our giving to the church. He said in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I, when I come. And so the point is that our giving should be intentional, planned out. It should be planned out. Our giving shouldn't be random periodic. Oh, when I think of it, it should be something that's a priority in our life. It matters when we give. It shows the priority of our hearts. And then number four, it matters who you give to. It matters who you give to. We're to give to our church who feeds us and our family spiritually, certainly. We're to have the, a heart of giving for those who are in need we're to have a heart of giving for those whom we're appreciative of, and then also for those whom we want to bless. So it matters who you give to. And then number five, it matters why you give. Again, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
The Lord looks at the heart. He knows what we have. He's given it to us. He knows whether we're generous or not with what He's given to us. He knows why we give or why we don't give. And we're not to be like the Pharisees who gave in the temple for all to see. No, we're to give out a heart of thankfulness. 2 Corinthians 9.7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it matters that you give, it matters what you give, it matters when you give and who you give to, along with why you give. All of it should be an imitation of God who has given so abundantly to us. My grandmother was a character. I could tell you story upon story about this gal. Just a little thing, feisty as all get out, but she was one of a kind. But I absolutely loved my grandma. I loved her to pieces. I especially loved her heart for giving. This gal got so much joy from giving to others. Every year when I was growing up, my dad and all of his siblings and so my aunts and uncles, all their families, would go over to my grandparents' 600-square-foot house on Christmas Eve. So there'd be about 20, 25 people crammed into a living room that only had room for two chairs. So if you can imagine, there's people sitting on top of one another. I think Kathy remembers the first time that I took her there. She's like, where do you sit? There's nowhere to sit. It's, it's a zoo. But we would all go to Grandma and Grandpa's house on Christmas Eve because Grandma had gifts to give. And so we would all sit around this tiny little room. My grandma and grandpa were on a fixed income, but they would get a gift for every single one of those 20 to 25 people. All year long, my grandmother's priority would be to save up enough money to go out and get everyone a gift. So we're all sitting in this tiny room. She would go back into her bedroom closet. She'd start bringing out the gifts. And then she'd go around the room one by one and hand us our special gift. Honestly, she was the best gift giver ever. She would put so much time into thinking about what we liked and what would bless us. And then we'd go around the room one at a time. Grandma was in charge. One at a time, you'd open your gift. And then she'd explain why she got that gift for you. And it was, took forever, but it was, <laughs> it was nice. It was nice. She wouldn't just get us a token gift where she goes to the store and she gets everybody the same gift. No, she would think it out and she would give something that was very special for each and every one of us. And I thought, you know, that's imitating God. That's imitating God. That's the heart that we want to have as Christians. As we imitate the, the greatest giver of all, the God of the universe, who has given us the gift of Jesus. Miraculously born. Jesus Christ. Jesus is indeed the reason for this season.
Don't allow all the festivities to crowd out Jesus. Concentrate your hearts, your attention, on the reason why we even celebrate this day. Our kids should be able to answer that question. What's the meaning of Christmas? Every single one of our kids should know the answer to that question. And, and this would be a great time of the year because it's centered around the birth of Christ. This would be a great time to pour out the gospel upon those whom we love, to our kids, to our relatives. It's one thing to give a gift. My grandmother was a great gift giver, but she knew Christ as her Savior. And so we had that common bond in Jesus. Hey, it's the most miraculous gift of all. The birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And honestly, we shouldn't need to set aside a special day to celebrate Jesus. Our whole life should be a celebration of Jesus and what He has done for us. Amen? Hey, you know, it's, it's fantastic for us to have a packed house today. It's, it's fantastic for us to be able to come and to hear our children sing about Jesus and uh, our, our praise team lead us in songs about Jesus and for us to sing out and praise us to the Lord. Let's take this. Let's take what we had together today and let's put it into our lives. Let's let this exude from us this excitement of the birth of Jesus Christ. May we live that way. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, oh, what a reminder today. As we sang these beautiful hymns about Jesus, as we look into Your Word and we see the glories of Jesus, as we listen to our kids who know why we celebrate this day. It's all about Your Son, the Lord Jesus. But Lord, we want to thank You for the indescribable gift of Jesus. Thank You for sending Him to come and to do what we could not do. And Lord, if there's somebody here today that is sort of depending upon their own efforts, their own works, just hoping that they're good enough to, to please You. As we've considered today, Lord, may You convict them of that. May they realize that it's not just about an acknowledgement of Jesus. It's not just about an acknowledgement of You. It's a, it's a trust, a faith, that they can do nothing in and of themselves to please You outside of this a miraculous gift of Jesus and His righteousness that is ours. Lord, we thank You for the indescribable gift of Jesus. And it's in the name of Your Son, the One who we celebrate. Amen.